Um, but we have rescued over 13,000 children. And I don't think about that as a, just 13,000. I think about that as 13,000 individuals who are rescued today, tomorrow, the next day, the next day, the next day. They're sleeping to sleep, not to work. And that's huge. Welcome to the Inspired to Thrive podcast. I'm your host, Phoebe Lay, and in each episode, I will be sharing with you insights from either an inspiring person or myself to help you thrive and shine online and in person. We talk about all things marketing, relationships, money, business, growth, mindset, and more. So thanks for tuning in, and I look forward to seeing you inspired to thrive. Catelyn, welcome back to the Inspired to Thrive podcast. And for those that are listening, Catelyn Healy was on episode 38, The Truth Behind Human Trafficking and Modern Day Slavery. And we talked about some big issues. You know, we talked about sex trafficking, which is a niche component of a much bigger picture issue, which is modern day slavery and the world's fastest growing crime. Uh, something that must be addressed both nationally and on a global scale. So, Catelyn, people obviously trafficked mostly for the purpose of slave labour and sexual exploitation, but amongst those there are other reasons as well like organ harvesting, forced begging, child soldiers, selling children and forced marriage. This is something that not a lot of people really talk about. It's Mm. a very heavy topic. There's no guarantee that these victims ever get found. In fact, something as little as 1% ever get rescued. But Destiny Rescue is out there and they have raids. They have many different ways. There are four different ways that you help rescue victims, which I'd like to talk about today. But before we discuss that, we recently went to see a movie and I was very, very privileged that you invited me along to the pre-screening of A Sound of Freedom and it actually represents the minority of the situation and you were telling me about mm. the fact that a lot of what happens isn't what we see in Hollywood. I'd, I'd like to start off by finding out how much of that movie was Hollywood and how much of it was reality. Yeah, I mean I don't work for Sound of Freedom um, or the studio. But I do know, you know, they've got great FAQs on their website, the Sound of Freedom website. It just talks about in, in much greater detail about where the story ideas came from. From my recollection, it's something about six different stories that they've blended in together into one. It is very Hollywoodized. Um, it's Hollywoodized in, you know, action, and, you know, all these details. At the end of the film, Tim actually shoots someone dead that never happened he's never killed anyone and it talks about that on their website as well so I definitely recommend if you're somebody if any of your listeners are curious about what was real what really happened what really didn't happen jump on their Sound of Freedom website and and have a little research there but like you said it definitely represents a minority of the types of trafficking of children you know in the film there's you know shipping container and all these salacious details that definitely definitely represent a minority of child trafficking it's not usually that dramatic it's often being sold to a person perhaps across a border often it's a manipulation the child believes that they're getting a form of income turns out they're not but the reality of the shame that they feel they're not able to tell their family what they're really doing or things such as that they've been sold perhaps by a family member they don't have an alternative option yeah it's it's not usually as you know, 
yeah, Hollywood's the best way to, to describe that film. It's great. I've seen it many times, as you know. It definitely hurts me to see because it's so real. I can see those kids. I've seen kids overseas who've been trafficked and I've seen kids who are in the industry um, as well. And it's very real. It's very well, very well done. It's a great way of describing the issue of child trafficking for the purposes of sex. There's a few scenes in that movie uh, when Tim is actually talking to the boy. Again, there'd be no scenario where any kind of law enforcement officer would be alone with a victim at all, especially a man, would never happen. But for the context of the story, that's what happens in the film. He's alone with him at, a, I believe, a cafe or a restaurant. And, uh, you know, the describing of him being sold from one person to a whole other person is so real. It's That's totally what would happen. Originally, I think he gets sold to a woman who has a venue where he's the child is abused. Uh, and then eventually that child is sold on again to a, an American man and that's where they catch him at the border. So, uh, yeah. Wow. So you're saying that the fact that children get sold from one person to another is actually what really happens out there? It's total. It's absolutely reasonable. You know, people can – the thing is, as horrible as it sounds, these people who purchase children, they are considering them as commodities. They're for, forms of income for them. They don't see them as children. They don't see them as humans. They see them as ways to generate income and occasionally they'll need to trade them, which makes them so hard to find. Yeah, and I guess that's why human trafficking is becoming more – it's a growing problem because unlike drugs, for example, humans can be used again and again and it's so hard to hear that, to even to say that, but it's something that can – provide recurring income. Yeah, there's a line in the film where he says a drug, you can sell drugs, and but it can only be used once, but a child can be used multiple times a night for up to 10 years. So when you think about it from that context, it's not just one child, it's a child 365 days or evenings of the year that needs to be rescued. So when I talk about, and we'll talk a little bit, little bit later about how many people we've rescued, um, but we have rescued over 13,000 children. And I don't think about that as a, just 13,000. I think about that as 13,000 individuals who are rescued today, tomorrow, the next day, the next day, the next day. They're sleeping to sleep, not to work. And that's huge. Yeah, that is. So, Catelyn, a lot of the work of Destiny Rescue is around Africa now and that is something more recent. I'd love to know what's the difference between Africa and Asia's issues and how how does sex trafficking occur in a place like Africa? So just to clarify, Destiny Rescue works in 12 different countries across the world. We work in Central and South America, we work in Southeast Asia, and we work in Africa, in East, primarily East Africa. So um, that's three countries in the continent of Africa, three in Central South America, and six in Asia. So just to, just to clarify, we're not mostly in Africa, we're we're evenly spread. But yes, we have uh, entered Africa in the last five years, which is a part of the world that's very close to my heart as I've spent quite a bit of time there myself. And uh, in Kenya and Uganda, which is two of the three countries where where we work, those are the two countries that I visited. Yeah, the context is, is very different than in Asia. The median age in Australia for an adult is 32 years old. So that's almost me. I'm 33 now, unfortunately, but I don't look it, so it's okay. No, um, <laughs> but the median age of an adult in Australia is 
32 years old. Would it shock you to know that the median age of an adult in Uganda is 15 years old? So that means majority of that age. That's the normal age range, which as a result, you're finding a lot of child-led households. It might be that that child, that 15-year-old, has their own children or more likely it's that they're raising their siblings, that their parents aren't around. And, you know, in uh, East Africa, for example, as I said, I I know a lot contextually about um, that part of the continent and they're facing a famine uh, once again, which they haven't really faced to this degree since the 1990s. We all remember engaging the 40-hour famine and how that was relatable back then in the 90s when we were young. But now it's happening again. And as a result of it happening again, also Australia, I'm finding, aren't necessarily as responsive to it because it's not in the media. No one's really talking about how they can't grow their agriculture and they can't find clean water because it's an old story. Well, it's not. It's, again, a new story. So it's a whole new generation of young people who are facing a famine again. And so as a result of famine, parents might go across the border to find work and send it back to their families. When I was in those two countries, I would um, the most fascinating thing happened when I, I was traveling from the village in Kenya to the capital of Nairobi at night on a Friday night, which I strongly do not recommend as a white person, and especially a girl traveling at nighttime from village to capital, but I did it anyway. And something really strange happened is as I'm traveling into Nairobi, I'm watching kilometers and kilometers and kilometers and kilometers of these big coaches buses full of people traveling to the village because they work in the city and live in the slums during the week but then they travel back to the village on the weekends because that's where their family live and that's not for everybody but it's a large amount of the population so I, I remember thinking about that and realizing people probably do it for the border as well they probably cross like in Uganda to Rwanda, in even in northern Uganda to South Sudan. Like, I don't know, but there's there's just so much traffic going elsewhere from where they live, leaving their families to go find work. Often they don't come back, whether it's that they die on the way or they themselves get traded into trafficking as well as parents. But, you know, it's quite common that the children back home just are abandoned. And it's, yeah, this 15-year-old now raising her three-year-old and six-year-old siblings. And when you're in that circumstance, you know, I've got a younger brother, not that much younger, but I'd do anything for him. Not a question in my heart or my mind what I would walk through fire for him. I've got a nephew. He's two years old next month. I would do anything. I No questions asked. I'd do anything for him. So I can only begin to imagine what it must be like for this 15-year-old girl who's who's now suddenly raising her siblings and she has to pay for school and she has to keep them healthy. And there's this story that I read about a young girl called Dahlia, I believe in Uganda, and her father had abandoned them and her sister was six and she was just starting school and her mum was actually an alcoholic and was just a mess. And so they were living in a slum at the time, I believe in Kampala, which is the capital of Uganda, and she she had a friend of hers from school whose parents had died and the, the friend just disappeared, obviously, because she ended up selling her body. And so when Dahlia's dad disappeared and the mum was a mess and then her younger sister got TB, tuberculosis, so needed medical help, Dahlia's friend actually knocked on her door one day and said, hey, this is how I survive and support my family. This is how I do it. And she and so it's becoming socially normal um, amongst the young girls and even young boys in slums to make themselves available for purchase. And so that's a very different context. I'm sorry that was a really long way of me explaining just 
giving you a whole paint picture. But these girls are often doing it out of their own choice rather than being manipulated or tricked into it. Whereas in Asia, that's absolutely happening. That context is happening for sure. But we're finding mostly that a lot of the children that we locate in parts of, for example, Thailand or the Philippines, they're actually in venues where they are owned by people. And I know that this sounds maybe not great, but they're actually got a certain amount of safety when they're owned because they won't get killed because they have property. Whereas these girls in the slums, there's nothing keeping that man from murdering her. Nothing. Mm. So she's extremely vulnerable, extremely vulnerable. She's desperate to feed her family. She's got screaming children that are her siblings that are going to die if she doesn't feed them. There's no clean water. All these sorts of compounding factors that cause a child to sell their body overseas or even, you know, the siblings as well. Like I, I haven't heard of a story like that, but I can only imagine the context. So when we saved Dahlia, you know, she counts as part of that 13,000, but we also saved her sister, but that doesn't count. So if you think about it, when we rescue a child, we're actually also rescuing her family. Mm. Yeah. So speaking of rescuing children, what are the four ways that Destiny Rescue can rescue children and how do you find them? So I'm, I might start with how we find them. Might be a great great way to place to start. I was in Thailand in October last year, so almost 12 months ago. I was in Thailand myself and I got to do some undercover work with our agents. Yeah, you shared that in our previous episode. Yeah. That was definitely worth listening if anyone hasn't heard that story before. I highly recommend it because I go into greater detail of the context of this issue. But when I was overseas with them, a couple of days that I was there, we did this thing that we call fishing, which is when we just start going into venues looking for kids. And so that might just look like us going and, you know, the outside world, just we just look like a couple of white people who are getting drinks at a bar in the middle of a red light district. It's no big deal. It's not weird. There are plenty of Caucasian people around. We do not stand out regardless that my gender is, is obviously is female in that context, but it doesn't stand out. It's not weird because it's a tourist destination. It's funny to people, to Australia, to go into a red light district, see what it looks like. But um, it's not at all funny. It's real. These are real people and they're dressing up children. And so you go there and you say to the pimp, which in Thailand's the mama son, and you say, do you have any young girls? Do you have any young boys? Like anyone younger than that? And they'll either say yes or no. Often fishing, you'll get a vibe that they might, but they don't know who you are yet. And so we go, mm, we just, we've get a feeling we're going to go there again tomorrow night. We'll send different agents or we will go again ourselves and be like, oh, hey, it's good to see you again. Last night was so much fun. The, the girl we met was lovely, but do you have anyone younger? And we'll just, and that's fishing, that's looking. And so that's really how we started. And that's how we do covert rescues. And also how we start the process for raids as well. So fishing is one way we relocate kids. Another way is that we partner locally with different community leaders. So in Africa, it's different. You know, honestly, I don't know if I could tell the difference between a girl that's for sale in a slum or a girl that's not because it's just socially known. It's just socially known in the area. So if you connect with a – in Kenya, it's a Christian country so you can connect with a pastor who's in the area or any other charities lots of um, local charities in the slums trying to help people you knock on doors you meet some people and you ask you know do you know does this um you know idea fit anyone you know in the in the area and they'll know the girl that's available for purchase it's just socially known amongst that particular region and so that's another way we can find children 
And then, of course, then there's the other option, which is we do partner with local law enforcement. All the countries we work in, we try to partner with the local law enforcement. But in a country like Thailand or the Philippines, where we've been working for over 20 years, so we've got a very close relationship with their law enforcement, they might give us a tip-off of they've heard something or they don't have the means at that particular time to investigate. But if we want to, that's the venue and that's, that's how we get the tip. So I think those are the main ways. Yeah. So I've heard about the microfinancing solutions. Sorry, just mm. to be a pain. I never answered your questions about the different types of raids. I only talked about how we find the kids. Mm, yeah. Only so question. sorry. Um, I'm going to ask you the next question then. Okay. So you've got microfinancing solutions as well, which I've heard is uh, something that really helps women get income and, and really not have to put themselves in that situation. And I've heard great things about the border stations that you have. Uh, could you tell us a little bit more about them? Yeah, absolutely. Sorry, I'll try and answer that question and not go off on a tangent. Um, so with the microfinancing, one of the things to note about rescuing a child is that you can take them out of the environment, but the reason they're doing it is because they actually need financial help and this is the only way they know how to do it in that particular context. So we want to provide them an alternative option. So in places like East Africa and Zimbabwe where we're in, and we want to provide them with an alternative to selling their body. So what we do is we ideally will locate a family member, ideally a female, um, because statistics show that females will uh, are more likely to contribute their profits to the family. So we locate either a grandmother or an auntie if we can, or if the girl is old enough, perhaps she's 16 or 17 and she doesn't want to return to school, we can microfinance. The sky's really the limit. We have one um, I shared with you when we last spoke about this off the podcast about an auntie who we bought her um, a couple of deep fryers and a little. we got her a little booth in the slum and she was making a fortune. Like she was making good money um, because we were able to provide her just the resources. And I think it only cost us $250 to set up, which in Kenya, that's heaps of money. But in, to us, that's actually not that much money. We're able to finance that. But we also um, supported the auntie in training for um, money management because, again, if I were to open a business tomorrow, I don't know how well I would do. I would need money management training just like anybody. And so we can't expect the same for, for a woman overseas. So we do that as well. Whereas in Asia, we actually partner with a lot of local businesses who will allow us to give these teenagers skills in a particular trade. So for example, we've got the... We've, We've got the Destiny Rescue Cafe. I believe it's in Cambodia, but I can't really remember exactly where in Asia it is. And the girls can go there and learn how to cook. They can go there and learn how to waitress. They can learn whatever they want and they can do it on us uh, for as long as they want. That puts stuff on their resume so they can go and get similar jobs. Uh, we have a lot of local businesses, other restaurants that partner with us where we will pay her wage for six months fully and then for the following six months, we'll do half and half with the business. And then if they want to keep her after a year, they're fully responsible for her income. That means that that, that restaurant has a fully equipped, fully trained staff member that, that can just keep going. Or we've just given a girl a year on her resume so she can go and wait for somewhere else. So we give wow. them alternative options. I even heard that there's a, um, a self-defense class program that we actually use for the girls if they want to do self-defense classes just as a part of therapy. 
and they want to partner with us now as well and give these girls employment training as well. So using that platform of paying, we pay for six months, then we half and half, and then the employer takes over. So that was a that was a very very first form of microfinancing that we discovered, because there are plenty of businesses who, you know, the owners have been touched by this issue of human trafficking and they want to help a child. They just physically don't have the financial means to do that. So if we can help them help these kids, then why not? Wow, that's incredible. Your second question, though, was about the Border Patrol, which is a completely different question. That's about, I believe, um, how the different types of rescues. We have four main types of rescues. I've already talked about the survival rescue, which is when we locate a child who's having to sell her body in exchange for food. That's primarily in Africa. We do find that in Asia as well. But So that's a survival rescue where we can actually approach, for example, Dahlia and ask her, does she need help? Can we help her? And in her case, you know, we had the auntie who we could empower to to help her and her sister so she could return to school and the sister could get the medication for tuberculosis. Um, but a raid rescue is when we partner with the local law enforcement. We've gone undercover. We've done that fishing or we followed that tip from the police. We've gathered evidence. We're all wearing undercover cameras. So that means that that time I was in Thailand in that karaoke bar, there is video evidence of me trying to sing in Thai (laughs) because the agents were wearing undercover cameras and voice recording equipment, which if they love me, they'll never share. (laughs) But um, we use that as the evidence for the police to join us and they will go into the venue first and they will raid the venue and we will follow behind them with our social workers and collect the children. Um, that is the ideal scenario because with that evidence, we can get the perpetrators um, persecuted. We can get them arrested on the day and ideally persecuted with the evidence that we've already gathered um, to prove that they are selling children for profit, for money. Um, and so that's the raid rescue. That is one of our most expensive rescues. Obviously, it takes a lot. It takes a little bit longer. The other type, which is our original type, is called covert rescue, and that's more of a one-on-one or two on two. So everywhere we go, it's two agents minimum at a time to protect ourselves, but also protect the girls. It's, it's you know, quality assurance, We've got to protect everybody involved. And if we find one or two girls, we know are children, we've been able to prove that they're children because we've, we've gotten information confirming their date of birth. We can offer them freedom right there and then. And if we don't think we'll be able to gather the evidence we need to get the place shut down, but we can get that child rescued, we will. We'll get her out. And so uh, we'll pay the pimp to let us take that child home for the night, they think, and we just never, ever come back. We, we rescued that child. Amazing. It's how we started. But like I said, it, it it's, it's shorter term, but it means that that venue can just replace that child in a few months. So Sometimes there are places that can't get shut down just simply because of who owns them or how well connected they are. And uh, I do know that there's a bar somewhere in the world, I won't mention where, (laughs) but that our founder goes every month to because he knows that that venue, he can't get it shut down, but he knows that they sell children and they have no idea who he is. And so when he walks in the front door, they deliver the 10-year-old to him. And then wow. the next day he sends a different agent to come and do the covert rescue and that child's saved the next day. And to this day that venue has no idea that it's always our founder, Tony, who's doing it, who's ruining their business. So that's wow. awesome. <laughs> so um, I'd like to talk more a little bit about some of the ways that a small business owner can help because there are some people that are listening that are probably thinking, well, this is such a 
big issue. This is a multi-billion dollar issue, in fact. How can someone that can only offer one or two hundred dollars a month help and how far does does how far does that go? Well, it, it, it costs us on average about eighteen hundred dollars to rescue one child. So when you break down eighteen hundred dollars over a year, that's absolutely reasonable. So I mean, you're a, you have a small business and this is how you support us, but you also support us financially as well. You're amazing. <laughs> Chief advocate. <laughs> but um, there are lots of ways. For example, Phoebe, you're sitting here and having me do two podcasts talking about the work. So to get the voice out there, to spread the, the work, you're also doing a fundraiser as a result of this. So you're continuing to advocate and you're also continuing to raise funds, whether it's directly from your bank account or other people's. So through your advocacy, that's a great. And we'll talk about how you're fundraising in a minute. But small businesses can actually use it. It's a great way to build morale within your business as well. If you've got um, a few staff members, uh, well, enough to do workplace giving, that's an option. Um, for Destiny Rescue, you can do workplace giving. Some businesses actually match what their staff donate dollar for dollar. So if you're a small business, that's obviously a smaller amount, so it's totally affordable. Well, depending on your, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I think it's affordable, but I don't know. Um, but also you can use your platform to advocate as well. You can use your platform. If you've got a um, form of social media, you can raise funds. You could do a, a fundraiser. I know that there's a gym called Ninja Gym or something. I'm not nearly fit enough to engage, but they're doing a, a pull-up challenge and so a bunch of guys and girls are getting together and seeing how many pull-ups they do and they're fundraising doing that and that's just how the business is is doing that so the sky's really the limit one of my favorite things about destiny rescue is that really the sky's the limit you can anyone can call me and ask me how can we get involved and i will say let's have a cup of coffee and let's brainstorm together and that's how you and i came here is we sat down and had a chat and it's just evolved and evolved as well so there's lots of different ways yeah, and what I'm loving is that we've got at the moment till the end of September, give up a meal challenge, which is so easy to do. All it is is giving up a meal that you would normally spend out at a restaurant and use that money to donate to Destiny Rescue to help fund a raid or a covert rescue. And the the great thing about this is we worked out that we only need about 60 people to donate $30. Mm, that's right which is nothing. I mean, a meal is, you know, about a hundred something dollars these days. So In Melbourne it is. Yeah. Yeah. So if we, <laughs> if we even just halved it to say 30 people to donate $60, that would rescue one child that comes to $1,800, which is the cost that it takes Destiny Rescue to rescue a child. That's fantastic. And if 285 people donated $35, that would be enough to cover a raid. Yeah. $10,000. And I just want to put it in a little perspective. Like I said before, one child, I know it sounds like a small number, but that's one human person. That's one little, little human who will be free tomorrow and the day after that and the day after that. And also, you know, I always like to think their beds should be for sleeping and sleeping alone. Well, now you're ensuring that their bed is only for sleeping. When, when you talk about that, it actually reminds me of the scene in Sound of Freedom where you see the girl's bed and it's empty and mm. the father mm. looks at, goes into her room and looks at that bed and night after night she's not there. Mm. What it, would you do if your, your daughter or your son or your niece or your grandchild 
if their bed was empty tonight, what would you do? Would you pay 30 bucks to ensure that they'd be set free? Of course you would. It costs us nothing to skip a meal and donate the money we would have spent on that meal to your fundraiser. We potentially will rescue more than nine kids with the fundraiser you're doing at the moment. And so if you're listening to this right now and you've made it to this and this part of the podcast, first of all, thank you. <laughs> you're amazing. This is a hard conversation. and I know that many are struggling even to listen to it. So I appreciate you and I appreciate the effort you're making just to be informed and know. But let me tell you, you can actually make an, a tangible impact. She may never know your name, but she can't be free without you. So if you just give up one meal and you contribute that meal's money, 30 bucks or 40 bucks, or if you're like me, 100 bucks, you know, me and Phoebe will go out one night and <laughs> we'll go to Chin Chin and order some wine. That's about 100 bucks, 75 bucks maybe. I would more than gladly give up that dinner at Chin Chin and give it to you so that you can rescue up to nine, maybe 10, maybe even more, who knows. But it's such a little amount of money and it's, you know, it's a one-off. It's not a commitment. You're not signing a contract, but you're rescuing a kid. So, I, yeah, I encourage you. If you've li listened this far, you must care about this. <laughs> so, yeah. And, you know, Catelyn, I, I think that what you've just shared really tells us that Destiny Rescue is in need of more supporters and there's still a lot more work to be done. These people put their lives at risk mm. to rescue children. That's right. What are your post-rescue efforts? Let's talk a little bit about that. Sure. Well, uh, so we have a freedom to, uh, freedom to Rescue plan, Freedom Plan, and basically we've partnered with a clinical psychologist that's helped us to plan it out uh, and we've got such great results and of children staying free after we've rescued them because it's not enough to just take a child out of a, a terrifying situation. Kids will tend to go where they're familiar with, not what their safest option is. And that's been one of our early, early challenges was that these kids would run away from us and we would need to ensure we'd, we'd create an environment where they knew that they were safe and that they would want to stay with us or with the aftercare centres where we, where, we, where we bring them. So our freedom plan includes physical, psychological, uh, in some cases spiritual support as well, um, which is completely up to the individual. But um, a huge part of it is the psychology of safety. A huge part of it is the psychology of they are not a commodity to be traded. They're not – they are a person. And so, uh, yeah, our, our um, recovery – process can take anywhere from two, three months to I think the longest is two years in saying that we have a few girls that we've rescued who have actually gone on to university to come back and become staff as well overseas and work in our rescue centres. So now our rescue centres are primarily uh, supported by local charities, local organisations that work in the uh, cities and towns where we work. Um, so it's local people supporting them but using our freedom plan because it works. Um, and that is something that we started doing in 2016, starting rather than having our own run um, orphanages or aftercare centres, we started partnering with local aftercare centres because the fact is that this is a huge issue and we may not be very aware of it, but they are aware of it. People in Thailand are aware of it. People in the Philippines are aware of it. People in Nepal are aware of it, which means there are local charities that exist already. And so rather than us all trying to do the same thing, why don't we partner together to do the same thing? And so we partner so well together with these organisations. Yeah, so 
I met a young boy, which I did talk, I believe I talked about in the previous podcast we did. I definitely recommend listening back to that. That's a, a young boy in one of our aftercare centres who we rescued, who shared his story with me. And it was a beautiful story, but he now stays in the centre. He lives nearby and he stays there because he likes to mentor other young boys who we find and rescue because, it, you know, it is rarer that boys are trafficked for this purpose, but it's, it, does, it does happen. And so he, he's a young boy. He's about 15 at the moment. He'll be 16 soon. And he's, he, was, he was trafficked when he was 14. And he, yeah, he stays on in our rescue centre where we with the charity we partner with just to mentor young boys as they also get rescued. It's beautiful. Wow, that's so fantastic. Catelyn, to wrap this up, I'd love to know how we can learn more about the work of Destiny Rescue. What are some tools or resources that people can get their hands on and are there any upcoming informative events? Yeah, um, well, first of all, if you are listening, we really encourage you to donate to Phoebe's fundraiser. She'll, I'm sure you'll include the link, won't you? It will be in the show notes. In the show notes. Um, definitely support Phoebe. I mean, she is doing such an amazing job just advocating for us, just getting the message out that this is a huge issue. It's the fastest growing illegal activity in the world. Someone's got to say it. It's not comfortable, but you're using your platform and I think we need to support you in doing that by helping you to rescue some more kids. And so that would be the first thing. The second thing is I'm actually hosting with a few partners, we're hosting a event later this year. It's an end of year event on November 17th. Uh, I'll also give you the details to that in your show notes as well, the link to that. Um, but we are looking for people who are seriously interested in helping us to end the child trafficking for the purpose of sexual exploitation. We're looking for people who own businesses or people who have um, platforms like yourself where you can advocate and be a part of changing this because I know that it seems like an impossible thing. You know, we, we talked about in the previous podcast, it's a $99 billion a year industry. It's a massive industry. It will overtake drugs in the next few years. It will become the biggest industry, unfortunately. Just it's the reality of now the online um, exploitation and trafficking as well. There's no doubt in our minds that it will. So it seems impossible, but it's not. And the only way that we can end child trafficking for this purpose, for any purpose, is by joining together and saying, we want nothing to do with this. Becoming informed. Perhaps your business is unintentionally contributing to this because it uses manufacturing somewhere. And how can you offset that? How can you be a part of changing that? You need to be having conversations with people like Destiny Rescue. So partner with us, come along. That's a, a beautiful event. It'll be wonderful. I will be there. Um, but the details will be in the um, show, show notes. notes. But I just want to encourage you, if you want to be a part of this change, if you want to be a trailblazer, this is the first annual international event of its kind for Destiny Rescue. It's the first one. And if you want to be a trailblazer, if you want to be somebody who is changing this issue from the beginning, then you've got to come along. You've got to be there. Because what would you do if it's your kid? What would you do? Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Catelyn, it has been so good to have you on the show. As we mentioned, we will be putting everything in the show notes. So whether you want to join me on the Give Up a Meal Challenge and make a donation that goes straight to Destiny Rescue, it doesn't go to me, it doesn't go to uh, Catelyn, it goes to <laughs> Destiny Rescue, which straight away will have a direct impact yeah. on the lives of women and children across the globe. And 
Also, there is a documentary uh, which is on the Destiny Rescue website as well. And that documentary is one that I highly recommend for anyone that wants to learn more about the work of Destiny Rescue and uh, and essentially, you know, find out how they can um, support. And it's called You Are Beautiful. And I'm going to put that in the show notes as well. So it's a full documentary uh, that you know, is only about 45 minutes long. Yeah, it's 37 minutes long. I recommend it because, especially if you've seen Sound of Freedom and you're a little bit drained by it, this is a beautiful story of a of a young survivor and how she was able to forgive her parents who sold her. And uh, it's just such a beautiful story of hope. I left it feeling great, feeling like I can make a change and I am part of this change, whereas I felt a little bit devastated. It was very <laughs> devastating. After uh, Sound of Freedom. So this is yeah. this is something that you can watch at home. You don't need... You don't need me to do a screening. You can watch it online. So Great. Okay. Excellent. Thank you so much, Catelyn. It's so good to have you on the show. And um, for anyone that wants to connect with Catelyn, make sure to connect with her uh, through social media, through LinkedIn or via the links in our show notes. And again, thank you so much for listening. Thank you to our loyal listeners, our podcast subscribers, and Mm -hmm. for those that support the work of Destiny Rescue. They wouldn't be able to do it without you. And once again, thanks, Catelyn, for being on the show. (laughs) Thanks.